Open Source is sponsored by listeners like you. Pitch in to keep the world's first podcast going strong. 15 years and counting. Find us at patreon.com slash radio open source. And thank you. I'm Christopher Lighton. This is Open Source. The legend of our guest, Chaz Freeman, derives from the moment in Beijing 50 years ago when as a young Foreign Service officer, still in his 20s, he interpreted Richard Nixon and Mao Zedong to each other in the breakthrough conversations of 1972. Even then, Chaz Freeman was a master of languages, history, strategy, and diplomacy. A great career ensued, and it isn't over. He's a writer and lecturer now, often sharper and more believable than the news media, about the quasi war between the United States and China, for example, becoming a proxy war in the Middle East of all places. As he wrote this fall, the U.S. is estranged now from Turkey, Saudi Arabia, and Israel in various degrees. China is now the largest trading partner and foreign investor in the Middle East in Israeli technology and Saudi arms production, among other things. This is not the familiar Beltway picture, Chaz Freeman. What is it? It's a reality that the American grip on the Middle East is essentially gone. There is now, as you can see, a direct conflict between Turkish troops and Americans who are illegally deployed in Syria. Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince and heir apparent in Saudi Arabia, has refused to accept telephone calls from our president Mm. and uh, rejected his request for assistance in lowering oil prices before the midterm elections. The Israelis have just composed a viciously racist uh, government, which uh, very few people in the United States like. And of course, we have no relationship with the Iranians. Uh, The U.S. and Israel have just run a major air exercise modeling uh, an attack on Iranian nuclear facilities. Uh, So there is a danger of war in the Middle East. But to go back to your original point, China is just chugging along doing its thing. It has not been paying much attention to the American effort to squeeze it out of the Middle East, in part because that has been so unsuccessful. On the other hand, Xi Jinping is about to go to Riyadh, and he will there meet not just with the Saudis, with Mohammed bin Salman and King Salman, but uh, with quite a group of Arabs. And this is perhaps the beginning of a Chinese riposte to the American Declaration Mm -hmm. of Economic War on China, which our national security strategy makes it clear is our highest international priority, retarding and, if possible, reversing China's rise. You say a new world order is already here. Can you describe it? And in the context of 500 years of world orders that you've charted... We have come to the end of the five-century-long period of transatlantic dominance of the world. Uh, When Christopher Columbus in 1492 joined the Americas to Europe and... Very shortly thereafter, Vasco da Gama joined Asia to Europe Mm. around Africa. Uh, This created the first genuine world order in which what happened in one part of the world echoes elsewhere, everywhere. That order, 
which led to European conquest of much of the world, uh, is long gone. And uh, now we are in an era in which the American inheritance of that Western dominance is also visibly receding. There is no real new world order yet, but there is one that is clearly appearing, and it is one that is characterized by multiple centers of power rather than a single overarching authority. Multipolarity, as we've been saying. Yes, but more than that. Uh, the economic order is different from the political order, and the military order is different yet again. We don't have a world order emerging. We have multiple world orders emerging. Uh, we see uh, Chinese dominance of markets like Africa, much of Latin America, in the technology sphere, while our technology is being squeezed out. So this, these are new uh, developments which really are quite unprecedented. And uh, I think in the Middle East, which you asked about, we see China becoming the major trading partner, the major source of new technologies, the uh, major investor. All the roles which we used to play, China is displacing. And still primacy is, in a word, the goal of even the Biden policy. How do we put these realities together? Uh, the word primacy is hardly ever spoken officially. Right, but it's there. It's there. It's, it is indeed the U.S. policy to maintain our dominance of the world. Our problem is that we're playing with an ever weaker hand against players who are gaining strength. Fareed Zakaria years ago wrote a very good book about the rise of the rest, and that is happening everywhere. So we find ourselves essentially committed to sustaining a crumbling order in which we are number one, uh, rather than accommodating the rising and resurgent powers, whether they are political, military, economic, cultural, technological. Uh, we have no answer to that. We are defending a kind of global dominance that is no longer sustainable. To me, the puzzle is how we deal with this in our heads. The evidence of China's rise is one thing. At the same time, we know somehow we're an adolescent empire running low on acclaim, running low on victories, running low on credibility. There's a crunch coming of understanding, it seems to me. We tend to approach the world through a, and view it through a military lens. It's very mm. interesting to me that our military, uh, which has not won a war in a long time, has now seen its prestige fall with the American public. Uh, it is no longer as admired as it once was. I think there are some who attribute that to the phenomenon of wokeness, uh, but I think it is mm. also a sound judgment on performance. Economically, we imagine that we are number one, uh, but in many, many fields, we are in the 40th rank or worse. Feels like? Well, public health is one. Mm. We are just ahead of Cuba in the 40th rank. We are not the wealthiest country on earth by any means at this point. Uh, we're in the top 10. We are 
certainly the most powerful militarily, no question about that, but uh, technologically, we have fallen from first among innovating societies, and we are continuing to fall as others come ahead. There are countries, I think the top innovator now is the Republic of Korea, South Korea, which has the most educated workforce on the planet. Um, I believe 86% of high school graduates in South Korea go to university. It is dominant in an increasing number of technological fields. We see the same thing with the semiconductor industry, uh, where Taiwan Semiconductor, TSMC, is the supplier of the vast majority of semiconductors of an advanced nature internationally. If you look at semiconductors, this is just an indication, since we're talking about comparisons with China, China now produces 15% of the world's semiconductors. We've fallen from 40% to 12%. It is significant, I think. We talk about international comparisons of economies in terms of gross domestic product, or GDP. But GDP is an accounting trick. Um, it doesn't measure uh, what is really significant. The Chinese industrial economy is now twice the size of the U.S. economy. Uh, we have, in our country, a vastly greater number of tax accountants and lawyers, insurance company bureaucrats, uh, corporate bureaucrats of one sort or another, uh, in an economy which is increasingly dominated by oligopolies. And we are competing with a country which doesn't have that. Charles Freeman, get personal, if you will. You've been living and working hard at the very highest levels of the United States government, security, intelligence, starting from that amazing moment with Nixon and Mao in China in 1972. When did you feel something going sideways? I had a childhood hero, Belisarius, who was a great figure in the Byzantine Empire. <laughs> he was a statesman. He was a general of great ability. He reconquered Italy for Justinian, the Eastern Roman Emperor. He invented the modern foreign office and the modern intelligence service and he was a master of divide and rule. He gave the Byzantine Empire probably 400 years more than it otherwise would have had. I thought when I entered the Foreign Service in 1965 that we were at our peak. Maybe we were. I think perhaps we were. And I think President Nixon sensed that we needed to find a new base of support, which is why he went to China. In other words, we couldn't continue to carry things on our own. And this was a recognition that our power was not as great as it had once been. So I think mm. this has been a process. What is most alarming about it is not that a country, an empire, if you will, descends from its peak, that's normal, but that we seem to be in denial about so many things. You know, it's morning in America, Ronald Reagan proclaimed, well, maybe not. We are now in a situation where we are vastly overextended, and instead of trimming our obligations and looking to repairing the multiple problems we have at home, 
we are continuing to offer to extend further. For example, NATO just offered Ukraine membership in NATO again, although Ukraine, by any standard, is completely unqualified for membership. It, would, it is a burden, not an additive. NATO being us, in a sense. NATO is the American sphere of influence in Europe. And spheres of influence are back with a vengeance. Coming up, how to lose the support of a global majority. This is Open Source. I'm Christopher Leiden. This is Open Source, following up with our guest Chaz Freeman, who was the U.S. ambassador to Saudi Arabia during the first Gulf War. What does it mean to say spheres of influence are back? And what does it have to do with the war in Ukraine? Well, as I said, NATO is the American sphere of influence in Europe. Beginning in 1994, the Russians began to warn us. That was Yeltsin, later Putin, most directly and in 2007 at the Munich security meeting, that if we extended our sphere of influence and our weaponry to Russia's borders, Russia would have no alternative but to react. When the Zimmerman telegram came in World War I, yes. and we believed that Mexico might be about to ally itself with Germany, we essentially put ourselves into war with Germany. And when Cuba was garrisoned by the Soviet Union, uh, we went berserk. So I find it very difficult to understand how we could not take the Russian warnings seriously. Uh, so there was provocation, but it does not excuse the gross violation of international law that Vladimir Putin committed when he sent his troops into Ukraine. And it does not justify an effort by Mr. Putin mm. to incorporate Ukraine into an, a Russian sphere of influence. We had choices on how we might respond, but we responded with severe sanctions, which deprive Russia of the ability to use the dollar clearinghouse in Brussels, mm. and which cut Russian banks off from normal exchanges. We also banned Russian oil. We supported Ukraine's mining of its harbors, which prevented grain ships from leaving. Mm. We attributed that to a Russian blockade, but there was no Russian blockade. There was mining done by the people we support, uh, which prevented the shipping from leaving. The problem there is that no insurance company will insure a ship going through a minefield. So when we talk about the war in Ukraine caused a global energy crisis, a global food crisis, a crisis in supply chains, and so forth. That is, in a sense, correct, but it omits the fact that the immediate cause is the sanctions. And the story becomes, sort of inch by inch, the Ukrainian gains and the Russian retreats through this winter coming. Is that all wrong, too? It could be. I cannot say, nor can anyone that I know, say with assurance what is happening in Ukraine. The Russians have one story, the Ukrainians have another. We don't hear the Russians, we accept the Ukrainian version of what is happening. But we have seen Ukraine's president is an actor, and he's a very good one, and he has found his role. 
and he pops up everywhere around the world by Zoom or whatever vehicle and makes a very effective case for Ukraine. But this is staged. It is not necessarily rooted in reality. Charles Freeman, Ambassador Freeman, you write about the world as a kaleidoscope, another word for chaos, in which the empires are gone, the United States is waning fast. Is there a graceful way, looking at a kaleidoscope, Chaz, to reality in our heads, in our politics, in our conversation, about where we're at as Americans? Kaleidoscopes change when they get banged on the table. And we are in the process of having the world bang our view on the table. The pieces are rearranging themselves as we speak in unpredictable ways. The world is not united anymore. There is no consensus globally about about anything. Look at what is happening in multiple societies where religious fervor is leading to greater oppression of those who don't share the faith. This is happening in India. It is happening in Israel. It is happening, I dare say, in our own country. We are entering an age which reminds me in some ways of the origin of the Dark Ages. The Dark Ages came about in the Middle Ages because the Christian faith suppressed Greek and Roman science. It became forbidden to consider Aristotle or Plato or Socrates or even Pythagoras and people were burned at the stake for heretical viewpoints. Thank God we've gone beyond that. But the fact is that uh, the anti-scientific attitudes which we now see and the conspiracy theories and the political correctness that imposes censorship remind me of that process Mm. of, in that case, a religious erasure of knowledge and its replacement with what was essentially superstition. So we see this in multiple fields. Take one, the pandemic. There's no consensus anywhere about how it happened, why it happened, what to do about it. We have fundamentally different models for dealing with it. Ours was spastic, I think. Mm. More elegant word would be laissez-faire, but I think spastic basically describes the Trump administration's handling of it. A great number of Americans are not convinced still that they need to have vaccinations or, on some circumstances, wear masks. China took a different path. They put the health of their citizens ahead of their economy and instituted draconian lockdowns to prevent the spread of the disease. And now they face a dilemma because they need to have a mass vaccination campaign particularly for the elderly, who in China uh, tend to be anti-vaxxers. 40% of Chinese over the age of 60 have not had a booster. We are in a period in which the challenges are analyzable by science. We can see solutions to them from science, for example, vaccines. And yet, politically, socially, we're not able to maintain a scientific attitude we default to nonsense on the internet. Charles Freeman, you've written a long list, 25, 30 items 
to describe the shape of things to come. We can't touch them all, but start with the most important ones. For example, the discovery, the world's discovery, that the American unquestionable military might is less and less relevant to the world's problems and even to our enjoyment, our satisfaction, our identity. We have adopted a national strategy of great power competition. A competition is a polite word for actual adversarial antagonism because the way we propose to win this competition is by hamstringing our rivals, not by improving our own performance. This is a result not of military factors, although those are also interesting, but of the rise economically and technologically of many other societies, so that the position that we have had since 1870, when we became the preeminent economy on the planet, is now in jeopardy. Psychologically, we seem to be having difficulty dealing with this. I think the appropriate response would be to re-examine our economic model, to improve our education, to invest in our human and physical infrastructure, not at the pitiful levels we have recently managed after years of gridlock in Congress, but at levels adequate to the task. Uh, If you look at infrastructure investment, for example, or to take another example, semiconductors, uh, we have appropriated billions of dollars to be spent over a five or 10 year period, but the amounts we've appropriated are mere fractions of those that countries like South Korea, or China for that matter, are investing in the same things. We are inhaling our own propaganda rather than looking at the world as it is. And the world as it is has more and more got its act together while we seem to be caught in complacency. Extending the economic point, you write that the sanctions, not only they don't work effectively in the end, but also they are driving the world to make alternative financial arrangements, which jeopardizes our whole prosperity to the extent it's financed by East Asia. The basis for American global hegemony, if you will, as shown in our sanctions, is the status of the U.S. dollar. Uh, That is something that was created at Bretton Woods in 1944. Uh, Nixon took us off the gold standard in, I think, 1973, because we didn't have enough gold to meet our obligations. Since then, the dollar has been a fiat currency, meaning it's supported by nothing but the belief that it will be able to be used for purchases. We now have an unaffordable debt in this country. We have had several shutdowns of the government and suspensions of payment on the debt as a result of political polarization here. And yet we continue to rely on the dollar to exercise our influence extraterritorially throughout the world. This has finally gotten the attention of those we have been attempting to control. Now, nobody wants the dollar to go away, and it won't. But many people want to have alternatives to it. 
And those alternatives are emerging. Here's the crux. The reason the dollar, after 1973 and our going off the gold standard, retained its value was because Secretary of the Treasury, Bill Simon at the time, and Henry Kissinger, the Secretary of State, did a deal with Saudi Arabia. Mm. And that deal was that the Saudis would price energy in dollars and they would reinvest the proceeds of their energy sales in the American economy. That's been the case up to now. The Saudis are talking to the Chinese about shifting to oil sales in Chinese yuan. Uh, the Russians have tried to move into rubles. The Iranians have never been comfortable with the dollar. If you use the dollar, not as a service, but as a punitive measure against other countries, you must expect them to react. And they're doing so. So I think we are confronting a silent and unrecognized crisis in our global hegemony, which is caused by our abuse of our national currency, which is also the international currency, to impose extraterritorial controls on other countries. Uh, there is a vast list of countries on whom we have imposed sanctions. It's not just Russia and Iran or North Korea or Cuba. By the way, the sanctions on Cuba haven't produced very much useful, and the only thing the sanctions on North Korea have produced is a North Korean nuclear weapon, an ICBM, capable of hitting the United States. We should have learned the lesson from 1941 when we declared economic war on Japan with sanctions in line with Woodrow Wilson's nonsensical notion that sanctions were a more powerful instrument than the military. The Japanese understood what was being done as an existential threat to their independence, and they responded at Pearl Harbor. Sanctions do get people's attention, but there's very little, if any, evidence that they change their behavior in the direction of being more accommodating. Chester, even in this long list of items about the shape of the world that's arriving, several of them arrive, and it's this trend to the east, not China coming this way, but Russia almost kissing off its European dream, Turkey in another fashion heading east, out of NATO. What is this about? This is uh, the eclipse of the five-century-long transatlantic dominance in evidence. Turkey, which is a member of NATO, now behaves very much as though it were a member of an entente rather than an alliance, an entente being a limited partnership for limited purposes. Russia, which, like Turkey, has spent the last 300 years since the time of Peter the Great attempting to integrate itself with Europe and to Europeanize itself, has now abandoned that. What did Gorbachev say? Our common European home? That was Gorbachev's vision. It was actually Putin's vision after the end of the Cold War. Uh, but it's gone. Mr. Putin now speaks of Russia as a separate civilization. He also identifies it with the global south, of all things. Yes, because the effect of the sanctions on Russia has been to push it not just in the direction of China, but in the direction of India, with which it has a long-standing cooperative relationship. Mm -hmm. India has become one of the great importers of Russian oil as a result of the sanctions. Uh, it is refined, 
and then re-exported for a great profit by the Indians. But the main point is Russia, as part of the BRICS, which is the Global South in action, if you will, and part of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, is increasingly detached from Europe, attracted to and integrated with Asia and with the Global South. This is a phenomenon that might have occurred in any event in time, but it's one that we've accelerated with our own actions. You're right. It doesn't make page one, but it feels like a turning point that the United States in the United Nations and elsewhere has lost the world's vote on sanctioning Russia. That feels like a big moment. We don't notice, but the UN General Assembly, which is the international community, has voted consistently with only uh, one or two countries joining us in opposition to condemn Israeli behavior, to condemn our embargo on Cuba, this for years, and so forth and so on. When the General Assembly had the question of condemning Russian aggression in Ukraine before it, I think the members very intelligently broke ranks, and we had a vote, yes, Russia, what Russia did was illegal, outrageous, and unacceptable. But it was provoked. So you had a great number of countries saying, well, mm. since it was provoked, and we know who provoked it, and his name is Biden or Blinken, or perhaps Blinken, Winken, and Nod, I don't know, they didn't uh, want to accept our strident denunciation of Russia. The same thing happened at Bali. Uh, we declared that the fact that the Bali G20 meeting recognized that we and Europeans have condemned Russia was a great political victory. In fact, it's viewed by much of the world as an obnoxious effort to polarize and divide an organization which is meant to harmonize and concert common action. So, yes, we are fighting a rearguard battle mm. uh, in which our views are increasingly at odds with those of the global majority. Now, I remember very well Margaret Thatcher at a Commonwealth meeting in Lusaka, which was devoted mostly, of course, to the subject of apartheid South Africa, opposing sanctions on South Africa alone and the other 50 or so members of the Commonwealth opposing her. And she came out of the meeting, and she was asked by the BBC, how does it feel to be so very isolated on this issue? And she said, you know, I feel so sorry for them. They're all so wrong. That is increasing the position we are in. Uh, you can applaud Margaret Thatcher's conviction uh, and her willingness to stand firm but at the same time, she was not on the right side of history. Coming up, in the end, it's a two-point agenda. This is Open Source. I'm Christopher Leiden. This is Open Source with the Inside Outside 
practitioner and critic of American statecraft, Ambassador Chaz Freeman. Come back to two things that in the present world are A, unprecedented, and B, almost life or death. One is the climate crisis, and two is this rise of China. Almost overnight, a poor, dependent, vulnerable country, deeply colonized, is suddenly the most productive engine in the world. How do we raise our sights to both of those overwhelming challenges? Well, they're very different. Of course. In the case of China, we have to remember that for most of human history, it was the largest, best governed, and most advanced society on the planet. Mm. When we became independent, China accounted for over a third of the global economy. It may be headed back to that level. I don't find the rise of China so surprising. Uh, What is surprising is that for 150 years, it failed to match the achievements of the transatlantic community. It's now doing so. Climate change. This is a challenge that has the potential not just to cause discomfort as sea levels rise and cities drown and subway systems submerge, but it has the potential to produce the extinction of an enormous number of species, including our own. And it is tragic that we have been unable, in large measure because of dissident views in the United States, which went to Kyoto to deal with this and then repudiated what it had done, which went to Paris and agreed and then repudiated what it had done and is now back, sort of, in this effort to deal with the anthropogenic causes of climate change. In any event, it's tragic that we have been unable to concert a global response to a planet-wide problem like this. But that is a fact. Our policies are contradictory. The major source of silicon for solar panels and the world's most advanced producer of solar panels, is China. And the silicon is produced in Xinjiang, and we have banned its import. The legislation actually says that it is up to a company to prove that it is not using forced labor. The burden of proof is on the company. So we see the Chinese jumping, leaping ahead in wind and solar power, and by the way, in fusion power. They are now up to 17 minutes of power production from the fusion reaction, whereas in the West we are in the seconds, not the minutes stage. And our answer to this is, let's go after Chinese scientists in the United States. Let's ensure that we don't admit them to our laboratories. So we are doing things which may seem sensible on one level, let's punish the Chinese for their bad behavior in Xinjiang, but which are actually very self-destructive and which corrode rather than support the effort to deal with climate change. Chaz, can you imagine a normalized relationship, cultural, political, military, everything, with China, Chinese people as people? We had that. There's no reason it can't come again. Remind me. But we will have to abandon our ideological crusade against China. Is it ideological? Is it racial? Is it historical? Is it envy? Is it a sort of unexpressible respect for 4,000 years of accomplishment? What is it? Uh, From our beginning, we said that 
we would act out of a decent respect for the opinions of mankind. Yep. Ever since then, we have been lecturing mankind um, <laughs> with our view of our superior values. That's very American. And in the case of China, it has actually changed China greatly during the period of engagement. We're now told that engagement is dead. If engagement is dead, so is influence. Changed China how? It changed it by opening it up to the world, developing a market economy, giving Chinese the freedom to travel abroad, which they do in many millions annually, and to have a government that was much more responsive to the popular will. It created a middle class of 600 million people. Mm. It lifted 800 million people out of poverty. We can take a great deal of credit for having inspired what China did. They did it, but we inspired it in many ways. We have had hundreds of thousands of Chinese students here learning from our best universities, subjects that are relevant to the development of their own country, and they've gone home, many of them, and applied these lessons. So I think we should be proud of our record with the Chinese. To sever relations with a country that mm. we say officially is the only one that has the capacity to reshape the global order is foolhardy. How do you influence someone with whom you refuse to talk or someone to whom you won't listen? Look at the meeting in Anchorage that inaugurated the Biden administration's contacts with China. We went into the room and said, you are moral miscreants. We intend to keep you down if we can. How close to those words did anybody come? Very close. That's the whole tone. And it evoked exactly the kind of response you'd expect, mm. which is, who are you to tell us what to do? What is your standing? So when I say abandon our ideology, I mean keep it at home. We had a very effective liberal democracy. In some ways, we have tarnished it. We need to rub off the tarnish. Mm. But that is a task for us, not the Chinese. Can you imagine what China dreams of in this relationship? What's in it for them? The Chinese have always been very clear about that. They are interested in their own return to wealth and power after a long eclipse. And they see a good relationship with the United States as a key to that. Uh, and indeed, for the much of the past half century, they've enjoyed a good relationship with the United States, uh, have been open to our ideas, have found ways to apply them, and so forth. In 2008, the wizards of Wall Street discredited our economic system in the eyes of the Chinese. Since then, it brought about a global recession. Many layman brothers and other great giants of that industry collapsed. Various things like credit default swaps, which were ingenious frauds on the public, failed to perform. The Chinese concluded that the United States was no longer an appropriate teacher for them. Mm. They do not want financial capitalism. We have it here. Uh, they prefer a purer version of capitalism with Chinese characteristics. They want domestic tranquility. They want security against attack. For 600 of the last 1,000 years, 
China has been ruled by foreigners who invaded. Mm. They have a reason to be concerned. They have land borders with 14 countries. They have sea borders with others. And we are threatening to intervene in their unfinished civil war. So they have built a powerful military. But the interesting thing is they did not do that until the Taiwan issue was transformed from the understandings we had with them on managing it. Its neighbors by now are also rich and powerful one by one. Well, Korea, course, for example. Of course, that is the fundamental fallacy of our East Asian policy. Charles, we're speaking of China at a sort of dicey moment, December 2022, when there are protests all over China, especially in Beijing and Shanghai, against the lockdown for COVID, supposedly, but really against the Xi Jinping regime. Do we know how that comes out, by the way? For the first two years or so, I think the Chinese people were very supportive of their government's position, which put health above the economic interests of businesses. Basically, they sacrificed economic growth in order to save lives. We've had over a million deaths in this country. We have one-fourth the population of China, at best, less than that, actually. They've had deaths in the tens of thousands, low tens of thousands. So this worked. But the Chinese people no longer want to be subjected to periodic sequestration in their apartments. The second thing that's happened is, of course, that the disease has mutated. It's much more contagious now. It's also arguably less lethal, although long COVID is a real problem. China continues to want to confine the disease, and I believe we're about to see a major push on vaccination, particularly of the elderly who've been resistant in China. By the way, contrary to probably uh, common opinion here, uh, demonstrations, protests, are very common in China. Uh, usually there are over 100,000 of them annually, uh, at the local level. The police have become very practiced at handling this. Um, they will identify the leader, if there is one, bag that person, and they will persuade the crowd to disperse. The regime survives, in short. The regime survives. Why? Because it is both able to exercise control, and once it has imposed control, it characteristically addresses the grievance uh, with changes in policy. That's what I think we're about to see. This is not, in my view, a threat to Xi Jinping or the Communist Party in China. Uh, it is certainly a threat to some local politicians uh, who will now be uh, axed, probably with the connivance of Xi Jinping, because they failed to control the situation at the local level. And it certainly, this set of protests has enabled... Uh, um, as your protests usually do, those with other grievances, perhaps on the issue of political freedom, uh, to come forth and voice their views. But I think that is peripheral. I think the main issue is lack of patience, frustration, with uh, what has seemed to be an unending series of lockdowns. My guess is that in 2023, which is coming up soon, we will see an adjustment in Chinese policy. Chai Freeman, I look at you and see the finest flower of the American political establishment. I mean, you've been in government all your life. 
and stayed somehow independent. That's the miracle. And I, but I'm wondering how many other people in the CIA, in the Pentagon, in diplomacy, not to mention corporate America, see what you do. It's not that difficult, really. Where are the others, and how will they be enlisted? There are many people in the government who are not sycophantic. In fact, one of the shocks I had when I left government and went into business, which I've been in for 30 years, I chair a company that does global business, only the private sector. We won't work with the government, either our own or others. When I went into the private sector, I expected to see examples of courageous communication mm. from the ranks to the boss. What I saw instead was disgusting sycophancy, far more than I saw in government. There are not just whistleblowers in government, although we're persecuting those as best we can, but there are people who have intelligent, realistic views. Unfortunately, in the current atmosphere, they keep those views largely to themselves. And we have a phenomenon in which we have politicized intelligence. Look at the appointees of the Trump administration to the national intelligence functions, mm. CIA and the, and the other functions. You see that these were people who were there explicitly to mold the intelligence to fit the political agenda, not to help the political agenda address the realities that the intelligence analysts were examining. In the intelligence apparatus, whether it's diplomacy, espionage, military attaches, whatever it is, is the sensory apparatus of the state. And uh, we have decided that it's best to drug it rather mm. than let it report accurately. Chaz, the patron saint of this radio and podcast series is John Quincy Adams, president, son of a president, especially for his observation that the United States does not go abroad in search of monsters to destroy. George Kennan made that insight fashionable in our time. It also is the inspiration of Andy Vasevich and the Quincy Institute. The fundamental idea is simply stay out of trouble, as George Washington implored his successors, but also take care of this country at home. How do we make it a real project? I think it is becoming a real project. Uh, John Quincy Adams, by the way, is a relative of mine. I'm not a direct descendant, but somebody I admire greatly for his, his diplomacy, his, not for his presidency. But the point is, that set of remarks, I believe, was made in the context of the Hungarian uprising. Uh, we need to keep our values here and implement them here. We have very little ground for running abroad to do what we say we should do at home, but don't do. I find it particularly anomalous that when our democracy is clearly in deep trouble on many levels, we should be dividing the world between democracies and autocracies. And by the way, what we call democracies is quite similar to what we did in the Cold War when we had the, the term free world which included Mobutu Sese Seiko and uh, a whole lot of people who were hardly democratic. Uh, Ukraine is not really a democracy. One looks at it closely. Democratic parties are banned. 
Politicians have been arrested. Newspapers and TV stations shut down. There is a monolithic control of the place. Maybe it can, again, can become a democracy. I would hope so. But to frame it in terms of democracy versus authoritarianism is preposterous. And yet we do that. I would like to see us address our own deficiencies, uh, where we fall short in our ideals, which were, for a long time, inspiring, not just to us, but to the world. You can't inspire the world with hypocrisy, and that is what we are attempting to do. Judge Freeman, it's a privilege to hear from a man who's not only a diplomat in Far East, in Saudi Arabia, but a historian and a close watcher who, to my ears, tells it straight. I can't thank you enough for this conversation, as in the past, and I hope in the future. Well, it's always a pleasure to be stimulated by your wonderful questions. (laughs) If I respond at excessive length, it's because those questions deserve deep answers. You can read more by and about Chaz Freeman, statesman and writer, at Chaz, C-H-A-S, Freeman.net. Start with his new piece on the global kaleidoscope. You've just heard a new installment of In Search of Monsters, continuing our limited series collaboration with the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. Learn more about them at quincyinst.org or at their online magazine, responsiblestatecraft.org. And look for an additional short conversation there and also on our own site that I'll be having with the world of the Quincy Institute every week of this series. Open Source is proud to be part of Hub and Spoke, a nonprofit collective of some of the best independent podcasts out there. Explore the whole panoply of Hub and Spoke shows at hubspokeaudio.org. Our show this week was produced by Mary McGrath and Adam Coleman with engineering help from the WBUR production team. I'm Christopher Leiden. Join us next time. Join us every time for Open Source.